Yeah, we're having fun with the word volatile because really you and I know the sad truth behind it is our culture is getting more volatile all the time. And last week we looked at the definition, dictionary definition of volatile, which means apt to change quickly uh, or unpredictably, usually for the worst. Now today, our title of the message is when your neighbors get volatile and it's all about dealing with volatile people. Now, you and I know as we look at the clock that a 25-minute message today isn't going to teach us everything we need to know about dealing with volatile people. And we live in a world where there are more and more of them. In fact, our series coming up this summer, Clash of Dynasties 2, is a series about prophecy. And what we look at at prophetically from the scripture is that the genie isn't going to go back into the bottle. Things are going to get more and more volatile. So clearly, I, I don't know everything I need to tell you in 25 minutes, and, and, and what I'm going to tell you isn't everything you need to know. But I really do believe we're going to unpack a story from the Bible today, and we're going to learn at least a whole lot about dealing with volatile people. First thing we're going to learn, and you know this probably already, but it's a good starting place, is that there are two kinds of volatile people. We'll call them type one and type two. Type one volatile people are people who are naturally volatile. I mean, they're usually going to change. It's unpredictable and almost always for the worst. But it's their nature. They've, they've been volatile pretty much all their lives. And you know what it's like to have to deal with one of those people. Chances are you're probably thinking about somebody, hopefully not very many, but we have someone in our lives and you know, it doesn't do any good to talk to them really. They're volatile people, they're naturally volatile. We won't spend a whole lot of time there because we're limited as to what we can do and beyond that, I think it's very unlikely that you're a type one person today. You wouldn't be at New Spring if you were. I, I do think there is a type two volatile person that we have to think a lot about today. Most of our talk will center around this. And this is a person who is situationally volatile. They're not naturally volatile. In fact, they could be naturally very peaceful people. But something, ordinarily a type one person, pulls them into a scenario where they're prone to act in a volatile way. We'll spend a lot of time there, but we're also going to look at another character in our story, and this is a person who is kind of a teacher. Um, she is a hero in the Bible, and I, I speak a lot about her. Her name is Abigail, and if in today's talk you don't learn as much as you would like to learn about Abigail, there are a couple of other messages in our archives here at New Spring that you can check out. In 2012, we did a series called Friends, and there was a message in there called Nerd. <laughs> uh, it's about her husband, but there is a lot in there about Abigail. You you can check it out. And then last year in our series, Kings and Queens, we did a series called, I did a sermon called A Game Abigail. So if you want to learn more about her, you can check out those two messages. So what we're going to do for the next few moments, we're going to meet these three characters in our story. There is the teacher, Abigail. You know about her already. It's fitting that we talk about a, a, a female hero on Mother's Day. And then we're also going to see our type one person and our type two person. It's kind of cool how God puts it all together in one story. In this brief talk, we're going to extract eight lessons, and they'll come rather quickly. And my guess is that there will be different ones of these lessons that will be more salient to our individual situations. But if you're into taking notes, you can catch these eight lessons as they come along. If you're not, these will also be on our app, and you can follow up that way. Let's meet Abigail. I think the first thing that we need to know about her is there's so much that she can't control. I believe the myth out there a lot today is that if we lived in a world that was docile and peaceful and everything was in place, that we could be, we could be like Abigail. But I want to just show you that Abigail lives in a world that she can't control. For one thing, she's married to Nabal, whose name means fool. 
And on top of that, she lives in a country that's going to hell in a handbasket because of a narcissist leader. So there's a lot in her world that she can't control, a lot that she can't do anything about. In fact, think about the most volatile people in your life and, and check this out. See if that the most volatile people, almost all the type one volatile people, think about how often they're control freaks because nothing will make you volatile like trying to control an out of control world. So when you think about Abigail being our teacher today, let's start with the reality that she lives in a world where there's so much that she can't change. She can't change her husband. She can't change the world that she lives in. When I think about Abigail, I'm brought to Psalm 57 because it's, the language here just seems to be written about Abigail. It says, enemies like lions are all around me. I must lie down among them. Anyone feel like that today? You've got people in your life who are type one volatile people and they're all around you and you have to, you have to live your life. You have to walk on that tile. They're there. They're all around you. But look at what the verse says two verses later. It says, my heart is steady. God, my heart is steady. I will sing, pray, sing and praise you. In the King James Version, the word is fixed. And that word fixed isn't in the sense of repair. It means fixed like a fixed point. So you hear what Abigail is like. She has to live around lions and has to lie down among them, but she's saying, but God, even though I can't change what's around me, my heart is fixed and I will give praise to you. I don't want to leave you with the impression that Abigail is passive though, because for everybody like her who lives in a world that they can't change, but their hearts are fixed upon God and doing the right thing, it is amazing what those people do change. They are the ones who change the world. There's, they, don't, they don't focus on what they can't change. They focus on what they can change. Such a pleasure to have Anita with us. And when I, I've had now four services with her on stage, and it's such a joy. Anita and I have a person in our lives who is the quintessential version of this, and that is our grandmother. Um, my grandmother, Anita's grandmother, I, I, I just wonder about her so much, how she was the person that she was, because her husband, my grandfather, um, was a Nabal. He was a type one volatile person for most of his life. Thankfully, he accepted Christ in his middle years, and the only grandfather I knew was a great person. But my, my grandmother married him, I think, when, when she was 16 years old and had nine kids. My dad is the oldest. Anita's mom is one of the younger members of the family. But I think about my grandmother married to a neighbor all those years, but that's not all. She grew up in a home with a mom and dad who were both neighbors. Her dad left the family. My great-grandfather left the family when my grandmother was about five years of age, and she basically had to raise her two younger siblings. There was no faith on either side of their family. I have no idea how my grandmother came to faith. There was so much she couldn't change. But when Anita sang up here today, when she talked about those who have gone on and the legacy they've left, I couldn't help but think about how my grandmother, because I think about how she changed the world. She had nine kids. Think about the world she came from, but out of those nine kids, three were pastors, including my dad. 
There were three of the girls who sang in a Christian women's group. Anita's mom was one of those. One was a Bible college professor. In my generation, there's so many of us, Anita, myself, and our cousins who are ministering around the country today. And in that generation after that, Jonathan's and Stevens and Austin's and Andy and Elise's generation, there are so many who are in full-time ministry. You think about one person who could change so little, and yet she changed so much, and what she did change continues to have an echo effect to this day and probably even long, long beyond my life. So I just want you to understand, don't get the idea that Abigail is a passive person. She's just a, she's a woman in a world of so many bad things that she can't change, and yet she does everything that she needs to do. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on the next person in the story. You picked up enough about him already. His name is Nabal. He is Abigail's husband, and his name, well, I'd like to find some way to say this gently. His name means fool. I always wonder when his parents gave him that name. How many of us are parents and grandkids, or grandparents, when our kids or grandkids were born, long before they were born, we thought about their names and what their names meant, right? How many of us checked out names and so we're going to find out what names meant? Um, my oldest son, his name is Jonathan Mark. When we were pregnant with our second son, and he's here today, and, and I'm, uh, it, it, just a great story, we were going to call him James Caleb, and I, I like that name. But Mary Alice called me from work one day and said, do you know what James Caleb means? I said, I don't. She said, well, James is a derivative of Jacob. It means tricky, and Caleb means dog. She said, we are about to call this kid Tricky Dog. So that's how Jared, <laughs> that's how Jared got his name Jared Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as, as we parents, we think about naming our kids. That's why I wonder how Nabal got his name. I mean, how, how does your kid get the name fool? Did they name him at birth? Did they name him in his teen years? I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe just when people said, who made that racket? Fool made that racket. Who did that? Fool did that. Who's driving that car? Fool's driving that car. Well, that's, that's Nabal. And according to our story, he lives up to his name. But let's just let the Bible introduce him. In 1 Samuel 25, that's our chapter today, verse 3, it says, Abigail was intelligent and beautiful, but her husband was surly and mean. Don't you, don't you find those collection of adjectives interesting? Abigail, intelligent and beautiful. Her husband was surly and mean. And then here's what the people who worked for him said. He's so ill-tempered, no one can even talk to him. Find a type one volatile person, you'll always be able to say that about them. No one can talk to them. No one can get their attention. That was Nabal. It is his nature. Finally, we need to meet the type two volatile person because this is what most of our talk is going to be about today. This is the person who's not naturally volatile, but situationally gets pulled into volatility. He is a hero in the Bible. His name is David. Yes, he is the one who defeated Goliath. He is the greatest king of Israel. But it's in between those two events that we're going to find him in a place where he is situationally volatile. What you need to understand about David at this point is that he is hanging by a thread. When I introduced Abigail a few moments ago, I said her country was going to hell in a handbasket because of a narcissist leader. Well, nobody felt that pain more than our hero, David. It all came down like this. When Saul was young, and he was the king, when he was young, it appeared like he was humble. But he wasn't humble. He was insecure. Think about this. Most of the damage that people have done in your life has been because they were insecure. And frankly, when I think about most of the damage I've done, it's been because I was insecure. But Saul is a completely insecure person. And at first, 
he seems like a very humble person, like how did I ever get to be king? But after a while, his insecurity goes into full blossom, and now he's like trying to protect something he never deserved in the first place. That's interesting. We'll talk about that someday. When he was early in his kingdom, he had a series of victories, but little by little, he began to move away from God, and God began to raise up a young leader from the sheepfold, a kid by the name of David. And there was a time when Saul and the people of God came up against the Philistines. And the Philistines who were getting the best of Israel because of Saul, frankly, um, they, they sent out their champion. He was nine feet tall and he just said, hey, listen, there's no reason for us to fight and have a lot of carnage. I'm the best man here. You send out your best man. We'll go mano a mano and whoever wins that whole side will win. Well, all of Israel is quaking in their tents because they don't want to take this guy on. And every day he comes out and flips off God and flips off the people of God and says, you people are a bunch of cowards. You won't send anybody out to fight me. Along comes this kid, David. And by kid, I don't mean child. He's probably about 16, 17 years old. His brothers are all soldiers, but David's the run of the family. He's been left to watch the sheep. And David hears this guy taunt Israel, and David says, what does the guy get who beats him? And of course, they try to shut David up, but you know the rest of the story. David won't be shut up, and Saul says, well, there's nobody else willing to go. Kid, let you go. Let you go up against this guy. So David goes out there with a bag of rocks and a slingshot. I mean, he knows slingshots. He's been watching sheep 24 hours a day. He has to do something with his time. He's gotten really good with a slingshot. He can knock the left eye of a gnat out at 40 yards. So, you know, he, he just goes up against Goliath. It's the perfect thing when you think about it because it doesn't matter how tall you are if you get hit with a missile. So that's what David does. He kills Goliath. And next thing you know, he is cause celeb in Israel. He is, Saul promotes him to the head of the military. It's cooking just fine until one day they have a military victory and Saul and David and the rest of the troops are coming back and the women are lined the streets to sing to the men as they came back in victory. And the women started singing the song. They said, Saul has killed thousands. Saul liked that song. That's catchy, man. That's going to go right to the top of the hip parade. He didn't like the second verse because the second verse was David is slaying ten thousands. And from that point on, the insecurity of Saul warped his world to the extent that he had he, he tried to destroy David, and David had to run for his life. I mean, he has to find some way to exist in his own country when he's a hunted person. He went from being head of the military to public enemy number one. There are 600 guys, kind of a ragtag militia, that have attached themselves to David. So I tell you this story because I want it to make sense to you. I mean, first of all, I want you to know why David's hanging by a thread, and I want you to see how he gets into the story. Now he's running for his life. He has to find a way to feed 600 guys. He has to find a way to earn a living. About the only way to do it back in those days was these, these militias would guard large estates. In those days, wealth was measured by uh, livestock, not currency. Currency meant nothing. But livestock was everything. So if, if a landowner had great herds of livestock, of course, what they would have to have is extensive grazing lands. And the more these herds and flocks spread out in these grazing lands, the more vulnerable they were to poachers and rustlers and attackers. And so what these militias would do is these militias would kind of come along and guard these shepherds while they were out in the fields. And then when the time came for shearing, the militia would present themselves and they could demand 10, 20, 30%. Um, you know, it's like buying insurance. So this is what David is doing. So David goes to the 
he goes to the area where Nabal is and where this family lives, and they've got large holdings, and David and his men guard them so much that it's little like a wall around these shepherds, and not one piece of livestock gets taken. We're about to learn our first lesson. When you open 1 Samuel 25, there are 44 verses, and they tell the story that we're about to look at. 44 out of 45 verses tell that story, but one verse doesn't. It's the first verse of the chapter. And guys, if you want to know about the Holy Spirit in the Bible, he never wastes a word. What we see in that one, you ready for this? Because this is really important to the first lesson. What we see about David is that thread that he is hanging by gets cut. Read with me. Verse one, now Samuel died and all Israel gathered for the funeral and David and his men headed for the wilderness. Who's Samuel? Samuel's David's mentor. Samuel is the one who has anointed him king. Samuel is his pastor. Samuel is David's last connection to sanity. He's running for his life, hanging by a thread, trying to find some way to exist without getting killed. And the only thing he can depend upon is he has this old pastor who has been his mentor, his guide. And David gets word, Samuel has died. Lesson number one, here we go. When a steady person turns volatile, it's probably wise to notice what's going on in their lives. If you've lived over 30 years, chances are you've experienced something. You have dealt with someone in your life who's not normally volatile, who suddenly becomes maybe verbally volatile, and they begin to argue about things that you know are not really that important to them. It's always wise at that moment to look at what's going on in that person's life. At the risk of being too personal, let me give you an illustration from my own life. Six years ago, my dad died. And he didn't have end-of-life issues for a long time, just for several months. But in that season, all the decisions fell upon me to make. And I'll tell you, if you've never made end-of-life decisions for a dying parent, you don't know what it's like. Nothing really prepares you for that. I woke up for three years asking myself every moment, Every morning, did I do the right things? Did I, I would go over those things. It was, just, it was just a challenging thing, exhausting while I was still pastoring the church here. My dad passed away on a Tuesday morning. I was already exhausted, but after I was spent a little time in the room uh, with his body, I went to the little waiting room in the hospital there, and I had my phone out, and I'm planning two funerals. We had a funeral here on Friday morning. There was a funeral that we were to have in South Texas, uh, on Monday morning. But what was really challenging was in between those two funerals, I was scheduled to speak on Sunday at one of the largest churches in America. And they'd had me on the calendar for over a year, and there was no way I could get out of that. So here I am, just want to give you, I'm exhausted already. It's been a brutal week. I have dad's service here on Friday, Friday afternoon. After I've had my dad's service, I'm at the airport getting ready to fly out to Atlanta to speak at a church. I thought, well, at least I'll have Saturday to rest and sort of collect myself. Anita and John still lived in Atlanta at that time. I was staying at their home, and I got a phone call early Saturday morning from a leader in that church where I was to speak, and they said, Pastor Mark, you know that our pastor is not here. We have a young man. Uh, I don't know where he's, he's 27 years old. He's suddenly dying, and we need a pastor to minister to this family. And is there any way that you would come and minister? And that's a great story, and I'll tell it to you someday. But I was ministering to that family pretty much most of Saturday. Sunday morning, I get up. 
I preach all the services at that church. Sunday afternoon, I'm at the Atlanta airport getting ready to fly to Texas. Anita and her mom, Kay, were flying ahead of me. They picked me up in Austin. They drove me 70, 80 miles. I had my dad's service on Monday morning. Had the service in the church. We went out to the graveside, had the service out there. Mary Alice and I jumped in the car and drove straight to Florida. And on the way back from Florida, I was just not myself. I was angry. I was biting. I was saying things that weren't kind. Just just not myself. And one moment when I was out of the car, Stephen, who was still at home at the time, he asked Mary Alice, what's wrong with dad? And Mary Alice said, he's grieving. See, in her wisdom, she was able to look past out of character speech and recognize that there was something behind it all. So I just want to leave that to you today, and especially those of you who are married, those of you who are dealing with, you know, you have kids or parents or friends. It's really important when a steady person turns volatile, it's probably wise to notice what's going on in their lives because really, I don't think we can understand why David talks and behaves like he does in 1 Samuel 25 without understanding what God wants us to know from the very beginning. The thread that was holding him got cut. Well, let's plunge into the story. Because we want to meet the people, we want to see what happened, then we're going to extract seven more lessons real fast. 1 Samuel 25, verse 4, David, out in the back country, heard that Nabal, Mr. Fool, was shearing his sheep and sent 10 of his young men off with these instructions. Go to Carmel and approach Nabal, greet him in my name, peace and life and peace to you, peace to your household, peace to everyone here. I heard that it's sheep shearing time. Here's the point. When your shepherds were camped near us, we didn't take advantage of them. They didn't lose a thing all the time. They were with us in Carmel. Ask your young men. They'll tell you what I'm asking is that you be generous with my men. Share the feast. Give whatever your heart tells you to your servants and to me, David, your son. There's no demand for a cash percentage. David's just saying, he's very friendly, very, very humble. We just like to have leftovers. My men are hungry. And they, they did a good job for you. And whatever, whatever you want to bring, Would you please let them have it? Well, if you look at Nabal's response, and our time's limited today, so we won't spend a lot of time here. It's in verses 9 through 22. Nabal freaks out. I mean, but that's who he is. And he starts calling David names, and he starts ripping him off and flipping him off and and, and all this stuff. And, and, And basically, he finds every way he can to insult David. Well, we know he is insulting a man who was hanging by a thread. He's normally nice. I mean, you heard him talk to Nabal. Please, sir, if you have anything left, just whatever you can think about. But he's not in that mood anymore because the type one volatile person has just pulled type two David into the web of volatility. David's men got out of there and went back and told David what he had said, Nabal. And David said, strap on your swords, David said that was a waste of time guarding everything this man had out in the wild so that nothing he had was lost. And now he rewards me with insults. May God do his worst to me if Nabal and every cur and his misbegotten brood isn't dead by morning. Do you notice that David sounds a whole lot like Nabal? I mean, it'd be one thing if David said, I'm going to go over and whack that Nabal, but he didn't. He said, get on your swords. We're going to kill every male in the family. Every male in the household. We already know there's some really fine employees here. This is crazy. Well, thankfully, the people who worked for Nabal knew who to talk to. 
is they went and found Abigail and they told her what went down and they said, you know, our master's a fool. Nobody can tell him anything. And he really flipped David off and David and his guys are not happy about this. So they said to her, you'll know what to do. And she did. We won't read this, but she got a whole truckload of food. And I love this. Abigail knew men because she not only got the meat and the bread and all that stuff, she also got dessert. And so she took that truckload of food down to David. Now, when she talks to David, this is really important. I don't know how God's going to teach us here today. Each one of us individually needs to hear this on our own level. But Abigail, the teacher, is going to teach David some really important lessons and in the process teach us about how to deal with volatile people and also teach us about how we need to think when we can become a type two person and get pulled into someone else's volatility. We'll go through these really fast. So verse 23, as soon as Abigail saw David, now we've got three lessons we're gonna pull out of these verses. As soon as Abigail saw David, she got off her donkey and fell on her knees at his feet, her face to the ground in homage saying, my master, let me take the blame. Let me speak to you, listen to what I have to say. Don't dwell on what that brute Nabal did. He acts out the meaning of his name, Nabal fool. Look at this. Foolishness oozes from him. Lesson number two, don't expect reasonable from an unreasonable person. If you're a reasonable person in a healthy relationship, you have every right to expect reasonable. But Abigail is telling David, look, this is who he is, and you can't expect reasonable from an unreasonable person. We've said that there isn't a whole lot you can do with a type one person. But Abigail gives us the two things that you can do. The first thing is put space in between you and that person. And I do some teaching on that in the Friends sermon from 2012. If you want to pick up more, you can check that message out. Put space in between you and a type one person. Secondly, she says, don't pay any attention to him. Don't listen to him. See, here's the thing. Type one people know how to get under the skin of us who are type two people. And so consequently, they ply their stock and trade. When we don't pay attention to them, we take away the greatest tool in their arsenal. So don't expect reasonable from a type one person. Lesson number three, there's the importance of slowing down. You're fair people. And I think there was something that probably caught your attention a moment ago. And that's when Abigail said, let me take responsibility. And we're like, well, it's not her fault. Well, she knew that. David knew that. And she knew David knew that. What is she doing? slowing David down. For all of us who are not type one volatile people, but we've, we've gotten pulled into volatility, isn't it true that 99% of the time the issue is speed? We, we, say, we say something before we think about it. We do something before we think about it. And then when we look back on it, we say, well, that wasn't me. Of course it's not you. But speed and Abigail is slowing David down. Let me take responsibility for this. She's bought time. And now here is the fourth rest, uh, lesson. Listen to the voices of reason. I love this. Abigail says, and she knows how to talk to men. You have to say it twice for them to get it. And she says it twice here. Look at this, verse 24. Let me speak to you. Listen to what I have to say. <laughs> she just sort of rephrases it. She's saying, slow down, David. And now I want you to, hear what I have to say. We're not going to have this in our text, but later on when David calms down, he will say to Abigail, I have heard what you said. Now, the, here's my favorite part. This is verses 28 and 29. We're going to pull three more quick lessons out of this. 
Abigail says to David, the Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty for you're fighting the Lord's battles. You, you've not done wrong throughout your entire life. Even when you're chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of your Lord. Lesson number five, remember who you are. Abigail is saying to David, listen, Nabal is being who he is, but you're not being who you are. You know, you don't, you don't, she's saying to David, you don't act this way. Even when people try to kill you, you're still gracious to them. So she's saying, remember who you are. And I love the sixth lesson. She says to him, you're too busy fighting the Lord's battles, battles to fight with Nabal. Have you ever noticed that when you get into a conflict with a type one person, even if you win, you don't win anything? My mentor, Adrian Rogers, used to say it this way. You can wrestle in a pig pen with a pig. You'll both get dirty. Only the pig will enjoy it. <laughs> and that's what happens when you get into a conflict with a type one person. Even if you win, you haven't won anything. And Abigail is saying, is it going to make you feel better to go whack all the men that work here in Nabal? Because at the end of the day, you won't have won anything. Hey, you fight the Goliaths. You fight the enemies of God. You're fighting big battles. You're fighting God, God's battles. Lesson number seven, she tells David, God will take care of him. And that's important because we know what it's like from time to time to be insulted and offended by people who try to harm us. It's important to remember that promotion and blessing comes from God, not from beating other people. This and I'm through. One more lesson. Verse 30, chapter 25. When the Lord has done all he promised and has made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed. Lesson number eight, don't let a type one person lure you into something you'll be embarrassed about tomorrow. This is, a, this is something that all of us who are parents and grandparents should think about. Abigail says to David, listen, God has given you a great future and great things are going to happen. When you get to the place of your destiny, you're not going to want to have this on your record. And what she didn't say, but is strongly inferred there is, David, people are watching you. Now think about this for a moment. Who are the 600 guys who are following David? They're the future leaders of Israel. These are the guys who are going to be the mayors and the governors and the judges and the civic leaders and the military leaders. And they're watching how David handles this. David basically is setting the temperature for how things are going to be in the kingdom. And it's important for us to remember, especially those of us who are not type ones, but we can get pulled into volatility. It's important for us to remember that our kids and grandkids are watching Having been at New Spring for 34 years, there are stories I've told in the past that have fallen into the dust of history. But I remember I told one story about 25 years ago or so that was a favorite back in the time. And I was in my very early 30s, I was elected to the presidency of a, of a large Christian organization. It was the organization I'd grown up in. I grew up watching the leaders. I grew up reading the magazine of the organization. My father had been part of that. And so to my amazement, when I was in my early 30s, I was elected president. I didn't expect to be. The other two candidates were both in their 50s, and I was in my 30s. They were heroes of mine. 
You could imagine my amazement when I discovered I'd been elected. Now, there was an international meeting every spring in the Metroplex. And in those days, I had to wear a suit seven days a week, but especially at this conference, because I was going to basically, well, what we might call MC the conference, introduce all the speakers, be sort of the face of the organization, and then all the other meetings, I was going to chair those meetings. So we were getting ready to leave for that conference on a Sunday afternoon. I'd spoken here uh, at, 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 our, at, at our then campus, and uh, Mary Alice was packing for us to leave, and Jonathan and Jared were with us. Stephen wasn't born yet. And uh, so I had laid out about three or four suits on the bed for Mary Alice to pack with ties and all the stuff that went along with it. We got about to Denton, Texas that evening, and Mary Alice said, oh, no, I forgot to pack your suits. Now, I talked about insecurity a few moments ago. I'm terrified of the responsibilities that have been thrust on me. I'm recognizing the spotlight that's going to be on me, and I'm thinking the only suit I have is the rumpled suit that I spoke in today and that I've driven the car all day in, and I just lost it. Now, I hate to say this, but I just lost it. I just started saying to Mary Alice, this is the most, um, this is the worst thing that has ever, it wasn't, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And I'm like, can you believe the position that you put me in? And I mean, I just like, I, I, and then I calmed down for a while and Mary Alice would say, well, why don't we just go shopping tomorrow and buy you a suit? I said, don't know what you're talking about. That just set me off again. I said, I'll go down there. They won't have anything I like. And more than that, do you realize how long it takes to have a suit altered? I said, it'd be at least a week. And I said, well, conference will be over by then. And I just got really upset. And I just, the more I talked about it, the more upset I got. And then suddenly there was a voice that came from the back seat. I had preached a sermon on the peace of God that day. (laughs) And my then 11-year-old son, Jonathan, said, Dad, do you believe what you preach today? I said, you be quiet. I think I said something to the effect, I'm the daddy, you're the little boy. You be quiet. Well, thankfully, I'm married to the voice of reason. You know, I'm married to an Abigail. (laughs) And uh, even though I just knew it wasn't going to work, I finally said to Mary, I'll say, all right, let's go to the mall. And really, to be honest with you, between you and me, I wanted to prove my point. I didn't say that in the other three services, so y'all don't tell the other three crowds. Well, I think we went to some of the stores in the mall, maybe Dillard's or someplace, and we went in there, and pretty quickly I found a really nice suit. The jacket fit just fine. It was the color I've been wanting to buy, but I knew I had the coup de grace because all the suits in those days, the hems had to be altered in the slacks. So I said to the salesperson, because I knew they'd have to send it out, and it takes like a week to get it altered. I said, how long will it take to get it altered? He said, oh, we have a tailor here at our store hour, maybe. (laughs) So we go eat lunch. I get the suit back, fits perfectly. Find a tie, and in those days, a pocket square. And now we're leaving the mall, and the suit is hanging up in the bag, I think next to Jared. Jonathan's on the other side of the back seat, and I'm thinking about that voice that said, Dad, do you believe what you preach today? And I said, Jonathan, I believe with all my heart what I preach today. 
but I said I wasn't living like it. And that's the issue with being a type two person. You're not volatile, but something sucks you into a volatile world. And Abigail says to David, you don't want to do something now that you're going to be embarrassed years later for doing. Well, I won't take much more of your time. I'm in overtime now, but basically David listens to Abigail and that's fine. And he, he and his guys put his swords up and oh, we're out of time. Do you want to hear the rest? Do you want to hear how this ends? Okay, well, here's what happens. <laughs> Nabal, Nabal goes on a drunk and he's just totally, totally wiped out for about three or four days, drunk out of his mind. But when he sobers up, Abigail finally tells him what went down. And he's so upset by what happened, he has a stroke and he lingers between life and death for several days and then he dies. And David hears that that's happened. So he sends a message to Abigail with a proposal. And in verse 41, she said, I would be happy to marry David. That's how it ends. Thanks. See you next weekend.